0: this thing on? What's up, everybody? This is Yakira with the Curated Cup, and welcome to another episode of Distilled Legends and Lore. In this episode, we have a special guest on the podcast, Stephen Gold, the founder of Golden Moon Distillery in Golden, Colorado. Stephen is what I would consider a stealth legend. He has been in the spirits industry for years he has consulted on the creation of many of the whiskeys we enjoy and is helping to push forward the new whiskey category of American Single Malt. This conversation was recorded in the distillery so you'll get to hear some distillery ambiance. We discuss his journey to founding Golden Moon Distillery, the reality of being a master distiller, sourced whiskey, American Single Malt, and so much more. So let's jump right in. Stephen, it's good to meet you. It's good to be here at Golden Moon Distillery appreciate you having me. Our pleasure. Um, so, just wanted to come in and chat with you and get to know more about Golden Moon Distillery. Feel free to ad-lib, add anything, ask me questions. It well, works for me. What is the origin story of Golden Moon Distillery?
1: Oh, God. Um, I started brewing beer when I was about 15 in high school. Mm-hmm. I worked in restaurants when I was 13 and uh, became totally fascinated by food and beverage. Mm-hmm. And I worked in restaurants and bars off and on until I literally got out of graduate school. Um, started playing around uh, in about 1991, some friends and I opened a brewery. And I started playing around not too terribly legally uh, with making some really lousy, Amer- what we would now call an American single malt. And that would have been, say, 1991, so pretty early on yeah. in, in the scheme of things. But people have been distilling off of beer for as long as people have been distilling in the United States. You know, I'm not gonna say it was the first spirit, but it sure as heck was close. Whether you call it whiskey, or whether you call it la de beer or however you describe it, um, beer has, has virtually always been a It used as a base for a distillate in the United States. Mm. Um, and we know that, that's, not just, that's just not oral history. Um, and we know, for example, that the Dutch were, were brewing beer in New Amsterdam, which is now New York, and we know that they were distilling off of beer. So my distilling as a young brewer off of beer really wasn't that remarkable. I mean, it makes total sense. Um, So I made some very lousy uh, uh, single malt and decided I wanted to open a a distillery. And I was getting ready to get out of graduate school and a guy by the name of Fritz Maytag, who's kind of legendary in the industry, um, resurrected Anchor Brewing originally opened Anchor Distilling, um, and really kind of mentored the early on uh, craft brewing and craft distilling scene. And he'd given me some free advice, so I called him up and he said, when are you going to be in San Francisco? And I was in Reno and I said, when do you want me in San Francisco? It's only a four hour drive, I'll hop in my car. So we'll come down next week, week, I'll buy you lunch. And over lunch he talked me out of opening a distillery when I got out of graduate school. said go get a real job and learn how to run a business and you know the regulations aren't there your skill set isn't there Um, you know get get some experience under your belt let the regulations catch up Mm -hmm. and come back in five to ten years and it took me a little longer than that but I went off I got out of graduate school uh, I exited the brewery and went off to Ford Motor Company where I became an executive, Um, had a couple of different careers, sort of big corporate, consulting, Uh, went back on active duty in the Marine Corps for a while, Um, got an all-expense paid vacation or two to the Middle East. Um, And then when I came back from the war in Iraq, uh, I went back to big corporate for about six months and decided it really was no longer a good fit. And so I started my own firm, uh, my own logistic services firm. And uh, that firm um, ran from 2004 until 2016. And in um, 2008 I decided to open a, a sort of a, a hobby distillery. And uh, we were only going to make just a little teeny bit of absinthe. I'd, I'd fallen in love with absinthe and and spent a lot of time in my travels visiting absinthe distillers, uh, learning really a very solid skill set in botanical distillation, on top of my brewing and and brief whiskey background. And I'm always learning. And so we started what is now Golden Moon Distillery um, in in 2008, and of course here we are in 2023. The end of 2016, I closed my other company to do this full time, and so that is the origin of Golden (laughs) Moon Distillery. Um, You know, today we're we have a 15,000 square foot production facility here in Golden. We're distributed in 14 states, four countries in Europe, the United Kingdom, Alberta, Canada, and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Awesome.
0: So yeah, seems like you traveled a ton and I travel way too much. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I kind of have to, it's, you know, we have grown, Mm -hmm. but my wife, who's my business partner and I have put everything we have into this. Mm -hmm. And we're still small enough and resource constrained enough that if the business is gonna succeed, it means I still wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm on the road, it's because there's no one else to do it. And whether that means I'm doing activations to tails of the cocktail, like I was doing last week, or meeting with potential investors, which I was also doing last week. Um, and by the way, we are in we are in another round of capital raise and are actively looking for investors, listeners out there. If you ever wanted to be a partner in a distillery, give me a call, we can talk. So need a few million dollars though. If you got less than that, it's not gonna work. Anyway, um, yeah, so I wear a lot of hats. I travel a lot, um, I do most things. Uh, the one thing I don't get to do uh, that I miss doing a lot is I don't get to do as much distilling as I used to. Um, I do a fair amount of consulting uh, as well, which brings revenue into the company. Um, and I travel quite a bit for that. Uh, I'm currently engaged with a, with a company in Central America on a rum project. Um, I spent two and a half years, uh, uh, five to seven days a month uh, in Ireland, uh, engaged on a large whiskey build for a rock star. Um, guy with glasses you might have seen him on stage <laughs> once or twice um, but we built a 50 million euro distillery over there and all the prototyping for that project was done here at Golden Um and they're now in production they've been in production for the last 15 months um, and they are getting ready to scale massively and um, you know the spirits tasting good the distillery is looking good and I'm proud I had a little piece of that um, and that revenue did not Hurt my little company and helped us grow. So
0: that's awesome. So you said you started off wanting to do absinthe. I
1: started off making whiskey. I came back to this because I fell in love with absinthe.
0: What was it like taking so much time away from doing it and then, you know, talking to Fritz Maytag and him saying, hey, you got to go get some world experience? And then that whole journey from then till. 2008, I yeah. never
1: really lost the love. You know, I, I left I left the brewery. I got out of graduate school. I moved to the Detroit area where I started working for Ford Motor Company. Very quickly, I started hanging out in breweries. Go figure. Um, and I was in the Marine Corps Reserve. And I got to know our communications chief at the 1st Battalion, 24th Marines, which is Reserve Infantry Unit. And he, his day job was he was director of brewing process engineering for what in Detroit was known as Stroh's, but it was really the Pabst Network. And one thing led to another as my career at Ford grew um, and I started taking on a lot of international responsibilities. And because when I would travel, I would visit breweries, I would visit distilleries. Um, I, you know, I was still learning, I was still taking classes. I hadn't wa- really walked away from the industry I was just you know, figuring out what ha- when and what happens next. Yeah. And an opportunity presented itself in China to begin moving brewery overstocks out of American breweries into China. And so I very quickly called up Chris and Chris said, yeah, I can introduce you to the right people. And next thing you know, I'm shipping sea container loads of, of typically Pete's Wicked Summer Ale for whatever year, like say it was 1997. In June of 1997, I bought the remaining inventory for 10 cents on the dollar wholesale, stuffed it in sea containers and shipped it to Hong Kong where I doubled my money and was very happy about that. So then as I was working in Asia, um, I got to know, especially in India, I got to know some of the bigger producers, Um, Allied Dimec, which is, in in Allied Dimec India is now part of Diageo, Uh, it's United, United Spirits India Limited. Um, I got to know the who, the guy that was their managing director at the time, and he picked my brains about what I was doing for Ford. Figured out that I knew a whole lot of, about a whole lot of of customs and trade and supply chain because I ran the supply chain for Ford. So he started asking my advice, and they had some issues they were dealing with with India customs and and what are called export credits and it's <clears throat> big, you know, sort of a duty avoidance. Uh, deal they had with the Indian government, pretty typical, pretty common, but you've got to manage it. And they had some issues with the way it had been managed. And I basically explained to him that there wasn't a whole lot they could do without exporting. And he said, well, how, how do we do that? And I said, you know, I've got a guy in Hong Kong. And so next thing you know, I'm buying um, blended Scotch bottled in India from Allied Domec India and shipping that into China. So I've got this whole little side alcohol <laughs> business. So I never really left it, okay. you know. And, I, and I'm still taking classes, and I'm earning some good money on the side. Ford knew about it; it was totally above board. My boss thought it was hilarious. Um, you know, so as long as it didn't take time away from my doing what I was doing. And at that point, I had the whole supply chain; was kind of the Prince of Asia, if you will. And you know, um, he looked at it as, as my recreation. Um, and so I kept my hand in and it's funny because I literally still to this day with the consulting and with my other activities in the, in the industry um, interact with people that I got to know from that little independent spirits brokerage beer brokerage business um, and it gave me the opportunity to really spend a lot of time in different distilleries that typically aren't open to the public and you know it got me even more fascinated and then um, you know, as I said, when I came back from the war and mm-hmm. I started um, Google Global, which, is my, which was my uh, tech services company, mm-hmm. a logi- integrated logistics services company, mm-hmm. um, I re- I, one of the first things I did was I started small distillers, a hobby business. Um, but she'd asked about absinthe. Yep. The backstory there is I found a case of Spanish absinthe, so Spanish absinthe, mm-hmm. from uh, the 1960s. In a junk store in Detroit, mm-hmm. and the whole backstory is up until like 1975, there was an illicit uh, trickle of absinthe coming out of Spain mm-hmm. into the U.S. through Windsor, Ontario, into Detroit. Mm-hmm. So you would still, in the 60s and 70s, find absinthe on bars in Detroit, um, which blows people away because it was outlawed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. you know in 1912. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I got fascinated by absinthe, and then in my travels, I started reaching out to a lot of what in those days were called H.G.E.R.S. and it stands for the German version of homegrown. Okay. Uh, these were the illicit absinthe distillers that were all over the world in those days. Um, very heavily concentrated in Switzerland, France, but there were some in the U.S. There were, and I got to know a lot of these people. And a lot of these people are now uh, the creators of, of, of some of the better absinthe brands around the world. You know, people like Ted Bro of Jade Absinthe. You know, Ted was an H.G.E.R. back in the day. You know, he was a a chemical engineer that like me was totally intrigued and he went out and created his own absinthe. I created Purdue um, the that product which we make uh, is actually older than the company because it was originally uh, first distilled in, in, in rural France uh, on a friend still that was not necessarily legal <clears throat> but um, yeah so uh, it's been quite the adventure I've never really not been involved in some sort of alcohol production either for, for myself or, or on a commercial basis since like I was 15 years old, you know, I mean, when I first started homebrewing. So, you know, I'm 58 years old now. So, you know, that's decades and decades and decades of yeah. continually my to grow my skill set, grow my toolkit as, as a master distiller. And, and yeah, I use the term master distiller. Um, kind of hate the term. Um, let's talk about that for a second. So, most people that use the term master stiller, mm-hmm. they've self-appointed themselves and probably they don't have the qualifications or the reputation. I refused to use it uh, for many, many, many years. And people would always say, well, people want to meet the master stiller, you need to use it. And I was consulting and um, my old consulting partner was a very famous master stiller named David Pickerel. Mm-hmm. So he created Whistlepig and Hill Rock and um, the most famous thing, Maker's Mark. He was the lead at Maker's Mark for years, built that brand. Um, but he had his hands in over 100 other distilleries. Um, the last product that he created was Blackened from Metallica. Um, and he and I were, I say we were consulting partners, but we never had a business together. There were times when I, when I worked for him and times when he worked for me. Uh, as an example, I worked on, on Church of Oak, which is the project in Ireland, um, and David worked for me. He worked on Metallica's Project Blackened, and I worked for him. And that was those projects were running simultaneously. Um, in fact, he was on both those projects when he passed away. But David, one of the last arguments we had was he was again yelling at me about not using the term Master Stiller. and when he passed I thought long and hard and I had a contract paying me six figures a year for part time work that said Master Distiller on it and you know everyone kept yelling at me and so when Dave died I decided to adopt the title now here's the, the the running joke about people that the industry has sort of made a Master Distiller most of us don't get to do the fun stuff anymore not very often anyway um you know I spend a lot more time, as you noticed, on the road. I spend a lot of time um, looking for funds to keep this little business running and growing. Um, I spend a lot of time running around, you know, letting people meet the master distiller. What I don't get to do on a regular basis is distill. Um, and if I'm consulting and I'm doing R&D for folks, then I do. And so one of the other reasons I consult is it allows me to continue to create and do what I love. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just very strange because people think, oh, you've got the best job in the world. And I laugh and say, no, my production manager has the best job <laughs> in the world. Yeah. <laughs> me, I get to do all the unfun stuff that, that comes with owning and running a business. Yeah. Um, and even if I didn't own a business, I've got a lot of friends that are so-called master installers. Um, and some of them are very, very big names. Uh, Dr. Ann Brock from Bombay, for example. Lisa Roper Wicker, that that mm-hmm. just recently stepped down as CEO of Lyons Brewing and Distilling, and was uh, master distiller at Widow Jane before that. You know, and we talk all the time, and it is fascinating that we share some of the same frustrations. And none of us get to do as much of the fun stuff anymore as we used to, because we've all got that nasty master distiller title. <laughs> so whether it's a small distillery or a big distillery, and we share the same challenges.
0: Yeah. So do you think that the title itself is what embodies like, what you do, or is it what you do that embodies the, the title itself?
1: You know, the title really means that ultimately you're responsible for running the distillery. Mm-hmm. If you're carrying the title of master distiller, um, it means that the buck stops at your desk. Mm-hmm. And whether that means that, you know, I mean, even if you work in a big corporation, you know, my friend Owen just took over, left Hands and took over his Master Stiller and Angel's Envy. Owen now has ultimate production responsibility because he's an employee of Proximo yeah. for Angel's Envy. Yeah. And all that that entails. And it's a big job. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, he's like, you know, I can't believe how little time I spent actually running the stills at this point. And I just laughed. I said, "Welcome to being a master distiller." <laughs> you know, he's got people for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, when you first started out with the distillery in two thousand eight, you said you started with your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, was it just you and your wife, or it, did you? It was not?
1: really just me. I mean, my wife had, had, has her own business, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she's you know, she's a physician. She. She actually is just transitioning from uh, being a partner owner at a large practice here mm-hmm. um, to being a um, uh, a physician that provides a variety of cutting edge musculoskeletal and other services uh, on a national basis to a practice based in LA. Mm-hmm. And she'll own part of the service line but not part of the practice. Uh, but she's always very, very busy. Um, but she's my full partner. But you know really I'm that you know I walked away from everything else I did in my career to do this full time she supports part time but you know every major decision she's involved in and she owns half okay. of everything you know or at least half of what I own so and right now between the two of us we own 97% of the company so this is our our business yeah.
0: so what was it like just getting started and obviously you've had you know years and years of experience but it was really the first time you said you just walked away from everything
1: well we sort of didn't um and that was the thing originally we started the distillery as a hobby business in 2008 and i've been i have the collector's disease i collect things and rare books on distillation and old stills are two of the things i tend to collect and so i had a garage basically i had a I had essentially an entire distillery in my garage that we, we were, you know, for years where, you know, I had three stills, I had all kinds of other equipment. I just, you know, I'd find them traveling around Europe, around the world, I'd import them. And, you know, those stills are all still in my possession. Some of them were running here in the distillery. Some are in storage. Um, and so when we relocated, we were in Ohio. We started this company in Ohio And then when we relocated here, uh, because Karen got a partnership opportunity at a local uh, orthopedic practice, Mm -hmm. um, I was running my other company. And so we rented the space next to the space we're in now, which is about 2,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. And it was her idea, was we would put the office for the logistics company in the front and we would set up a production site in the back, Mm -hmm. which is what we did. And that was two thousand square feet of the fourteen thousand give or take that we currently have in this building. Mm-hmm. And obviously we've taken over, you know, yeah. <laughs> the majority of the building at this point and yeah. you know, hopefully we're still growing. So
0: So what was one of the first products that you produced and went to market?
1: Um with this company as opposed to prior distillation efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we started making absinthe and you know nobody nobody can make a living off of absinthe except ted bro Um, absinthe is a niche product it's a fun product it's a difficult product to do well and i'm proud to say that we are highly respected in the industry and we do a very very solid absinthe but you're never gonna you're never gonna make money off of an absinthe it's a bragging rights product at best and the intent with the original business was to make a few hundred bottles of absinthe a year and that was it well, very quickly, we started uh, working on other things like our gin, which we still produce, and then our liqueurs. Um, and I still had the bug to make whiskey, which I'd had, you know, literally since I started brewing. So when I was a teenager. And so we started playing around with all the whiskey. Um, we decided to open Golden Moon Speakeasy, which is around the corner, to our tasting room, and really decided to push the edge of the envelope with what a distillery tasting room could be and so we created a second brand uh, that was sort of a modified found spirit called Gunfighter American Whiskies. And the the first of the Gunfighter whiskeys were whiskies that we would buy in Kentucky or Tennessee mm-hmm. and then we would get port style wine casks from California. And we would age, we would secondary cask finish the way I was trained in, and I, I trained in Scotland so I, I, I've been trained on yeah. how to do this stuff. Um, so we did port, finish, bourbons, and ryes predominantly just to sell across the bar at Golden Moon Speakeasy. Well, that product took off pretty well. Um, and it allowed us to really build a world-class cocktail program where every single input of that program was alcohol we made. Which is why, if you look in the room we're in, yeah. the audience can't see it, but you know, there's 20-plus skews on the wall yeah. of different liquors, liqueurs, whiskies, brandies, etc., all of which we make, and the reason we initially created so many was to feed the cocktail program at Speakeasy. So um, we started, as I said, in the little teeny space next door, with me doing everything and running another company. Um, I've got a dozen employees today, and you know I don't get to do everything. I just get to do the heavy lifting on, you know, management, fundraising, sales, PR, etc. And I've got a very solid production crew that not only takes the formulas and procedures I've developed, yeah. but continues to improve upon them. Yeah. And that's the point. This is not the Steve Gould show. Yeah. This is the Golden Moon show, and that means it's the entire team. And I've got an amazing team. That's awesome.
0: So what was that moment like for you when you realized, hey, this is not just a hobby anymore. This is something that it's real. You know. What was that again like?
1: this is we took a very atypical path and you know, we didn't start out to be a whiskey distillery um, in 2010 so my my logistics services company was heavily we started in automotive telecom and, and defense and because of the the economy and the war the commercial side of the business atrophied pretty quickly because those you know automotive and telecom were struggling the defense piece blossomed, and so we became almost a captive supplier to the U.S. government. And then um, the Obama administration and the Tea Party really started not getting along, and we had multiple continuing resolutions where the government wouldn't pass a budget. Then we had sequester, and we went from being hugely profitable and hugely successful to really hurting. And in a three week period, we lost $18 million worth of business. And remember I started that company as a one man shell. So I built that from scratch. Yeah. And you know, I never loved that. I didn't, I didn't want to be a government contractor. I didn't want to be in the defense business. It really was a way when I came home from the war in Iraq, not to be working out in Asia in the big corporate world. Mm-hmm. So I could see my kids grow up. Yeah. That's why I started that company. And my, at that point, my kids were in college, they were out of the house. And Karen and I looked at each other over dinner one night and said, "Why don't we just phase out Gould Global and pivot and make the distillery a going concern?" Yeah. And so we made that decision in about 2010, um, and then just stopped business development and let the contracts um, predominantly let the contracts run down. We sold the last of the business in 2016, and, and I focused on this. So at that point we, we pivoted from mm-hmm. being a very tiny niche distillery with a fun tasting room mm. to being a, um, uh, a distillery that was looking to be a major player in the American whiskey world and especially in the emerging category of American single malt mm-hmm. so remember I told you the first thing I ever distilled was what we would now call an American single malt yeah. so I've actually been distilling off of malted barley in the United States longer than most at least in the modern era. But as I said, you know, you get some people in the American single malt world that say, yeah, this is a new thing. (laughs) No, it's not. The Dutch were doing it before the the United, you know, before the British held New York, when it was New Amsterdam, was a Dutch colony. They were distilling off of barley. So, and I'm kind of a barley guy. I mean, I've got it tattooed on my body. Um, My dog's named Barley. Um, I make other whiskeys, but everything we do here with the single malts is 100% grain to glass. It's all barley that's grown in Colorado, Idaho, and Wyoming. It's all malted right down the street here at Golden Malting. Um, Everything is then brought into the distillery. We use only Rocky Mountain runoff water. That's water from the Montezuma and Clear Creek watersheds. Um, Side note, that is Golden City water. That is what it (laughs) is, but it is Rocky Mountain water. Um, Beautiful minerality, helps with fermentation. Um, We mill, mash, ferment, distill, and mature all our single malts, within in the walls of this store and then for the gunfighter we source that whiskey predominantly from Kentucky um, though there are some uh, we've got some Tennessee whiskey kicking around etc certain releases we'd say exactly what everything is on the bottle but everything in the gunfighter line we've done something to so the vast majority we're gonna age out in secondary casks so we do California port style wine for our port finish we do four square rum from Barbados for our rum finish bourbon and rye. Uh, we did Del Professor Vermouth uh, pre-COVID for our Vermouth finish, and then when Grupo Campari purchased Del Professor, they said we had to discontinue the project. Right. So we may be partnering with another Italian Vermouth company to do um, a different Vermouth moving forward, uh, but we'll see. And then we're getting ready to do a, a collaboration with Fortaleza Tequila, where we'll finish out um, both the bourbon and a rye in uh, tequila barrels. Yes. And then last but not least, we do a product called Master's Blend. So Master's Blend is 23% of 15-year-old Tennessee bourbon and 77% of our single malt distilled here in-house. But because it's not 100% our distillate, it's a Gunfighter line product, not a Golden Moon product. And that's the delineation. If it says Golden Moon, we distilled it. If it doesn't say Golden Moon, we have it. Or we have, or, or there's other people's distillate in there. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah it does. So.
0: So let's talk about kind of like the advancements that have been happening with the new category of American single malt. Like, okay. what are you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I've been heavily involved uh, through the various trade organizations, DISCUS, ADI, CSA, and probably most germane for this discussion, the American Single Malt Whiskey Com- uh, Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us, all those organizations separately submitted uh, a request for a formal definition mm-hmm. to the, the TTB, which is the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, mm-hmm. our regulatory agency. Um, it's been about a year and a half since those submissions were made, uh, and we are all patiently waiting for TTB to come back and say, this is what the definition is going to look like. We're hoping they're going to adopt our definition as is. Mm-hmm. But who knows what they're going to do? And the reality is that while well, TTB's intentions are good, mm-hmm. you know, most of the people in TTB could not taste a bourbon or a single malt and tell you which is which. You know, and you know, and they're they're, te- they're technocrats. They're they're bureaucrats. They're they're people that you know, and they're under resourced. So there's not even the resources and the time to give them the additional training. You know, they've got a horrible job to do, and you know. I've actually advocated for increasing their budget uh, in my government affairs work with the industry. Um, so the fact that it's taken a year and a half does not surprise me. Uh, we're hoping we'll see it in the near future, and when it does, we believe that you know American single malt will be the next big thing in whiskey, if you will. I mean, bourbon is still king in this country. Rye has been holding very strong, um, but American single malt's been growing. You know, the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission now has, I want to say, 140 members, maybe more, that are actually producing, under the definition that we submitted, American single malts. We've seen a number of the big producers now either making acquisitions in the craft space or coming out with their own American single malts. So Jack Daniels has an American single malt now, believe it or not. Yep. <laughs> um, Yellowstone has a four-year, Steve Beam, mm-hmm. has a four-year aged American single malt. MGP is making a single malt. They're selling to craft producers. Um, uh, uh, Westward uh, was has been invested in by Diageo. Balcones was bought by Diageo. Westland was bought by uh, by um, I forget who bought them. Chavez, Chavez. Um, So really, you're seeing a lot of the larger players. Then of course Stranahan's, which is right down the street, which is owned by Proximo is the largest American single malt producer in the, in, in the category today. Now, having said that, nobody has really dominated the category yet. And Golden Moon, my little distillery here, is one more accolades than most in the category. And so we're actually hoping after this next round of investment, that we will be well positioned to be able to become one of the dominant players. But I gotta get a few million dollars in here to scale. I mean, we're ready to go. We just need the capital to be able to take and scale what we've already created that's already won numerous awards so long story short i'm pretty <laughs> positive on american single malt
0: do you think the reason that nobody has really dominated american single malt is because you know it's it's a little bit kind of out of the flavor profile of most people who like whiskey these days which is bourbon and rise no i
1: actually think it's more approachable for mm-hmm. many many people remember the average consumer is not a whiskey aficionado mm-hmm. The average whiskey aficionado really isn't an expert in whiskey. The bottom line is, people drink what they enjoy drinking. Mm -hmm. And most whiskey drinkers have only been exposed to a few things. So they go with what they know. And I mean, that's why brands like Jack Daniels are so successful. It's a little sweeter, it's a little more approachable. And, you know, say what you will about it, it's, it's a quality product. And a lot of Americans, that is what they know as whiskey. And so that's what they go to and that's what they drink. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenge with bringing a new category like American single malt online, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit into the same flavor profile as a Scottish whiskey, Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit into the same flavor profile as a bourbon or a rye, is exposing people to it and getting people comfortable with the taste. But once you get people to put it in their mouth, most whiskey drinkers go, oh wow, yeah. and even because the American single malt community came out of largely out of the craft beer community, mm. we Americans tend to have a lot more um, freedom of expression in our whiskeys mm. than our European counterparts. Um, you know, big bourbon and big and big rye tends to have very similar pravo, favor, flavor profiles, mm. but when you look at American single malt, it's like looking at American craft beer. The distilleries are all over the place. So my American single malt is not going to taste like Westwards. It's not going to taste like Stranahan's. Mm. You know, they'll have some similarities. They're definitely both whiskeys. So really, the object is to be able to educate the consumer and get them to actually try and get to know the the product a little bit. But the more people talk about American single malt, the more people are going to be welcoming to the category. But if nobody talks about it, it sits on the shelf because nobody knows what it is. You know. And so listeners out there, wherever you are, there's 2,600 distilleries in the United States today. Give or take, one in ten of those makes an American single malt. Go to your local distillery. Go to your local liquor store. Find an American single malt and try it. You might like it.
0: So I just have a couple more questions. Sure. And then we'll, we'll wrap up. First question is... Being in this industry for so long and, you know, the side businesses that you've had and, Mm -hmm. you know, this distillery now and, you know, the differences between Golden Moon and Gunfighter and everything like that, what surprises you and what doesn't surprise you in this industry now?
1: I am still always amazed that a lot of the brands that tend to succeed it's more about money than it is about quality. And that's a, that, that's a frustrating statement to me. You know, Karen and I walked into this business and we are not wealthy, we are well off. And we've self-funded. And we're, we're tiny. And I see brands that surpass us that have, are a lot younger and a lot newer, but they walked in with somebody with, with millions of dollars behind them to start. And Bec- it, it's it's oftentimes more about marketing, sales, PR, and packaging, than it is about the quality of the juice in the bottle. And I guess as, as a guy with the amount of years of business experience in multiple industries I have, that shouldn't surprise me, but it still does. And it frustrates me a little bit, you know, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some amazing brands that have come out that are doing wonderful things. Um, they're independent bottlers and they don't own their own mm-hmm. um, their own distillery. And there's nothing wrong with that. Independent bottlers are fine as long as they're putting quality product in their bottles and they're being honest about what they're doing. I mean, a buddy of mine, Dave Schmier owns Proof of Wood. Mm-hmm. And there's not a there's not a bad product in his product line and I'll drink any one of them happily. Mm-hmm. Doesn't own a distillery. And some people, you know, will, will, you know, say very negative things about that. He's totally open about what he does, and he keeps winning awards because he he hand selects, and blends, and makes beautiful whiskeys. Totally cool with that. But he's also self-made. You know, um, I mean, he, he built another brand that he sold, and then took took the the pro, uh, brand brand called Redemption Rye, and then took the proceeds from that and built the company he has today. Um, you know, But then I see brands, and I'm not going to name any, any any names of our brands I'm not enthralled with. Let's just say they're rather mediocre as far as the juice. But they get great marketing, sales, and PR. And you know what? God bless them for building successful businesses. I'm happy for them. Um, but it's frustrating that, that what sells isn't necessarily the best. And... You know, I've seen people spend hundreds of dollars on bottles of whiskey, and I know the bottle right next to it for 50 bucks is a better whiskey. And, you know, there are brands that people buy because because of the brand, because of marketing, you know? Um, the other thing that really cracks me up is you'll see people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on brands like Pappy. Mm-hmm. And I love what Mark Brown and the folks at Sazerac do Pappy is a quality product, and I'm not saying it's not but you'll get some of those same people that will criticize smaller brands for sourcing when Pappy's all sourced. (laughs) Pappy's totally sourced. Everyone needs to understand that. Mark Brown bought all those barrels from multiple distilleries years ago and blends them together. That that stuff wasn't distilled at Buffalo Trace, and it sure wasn't distilled at the Van Winkle Distillery at this point. It's all sourced. Is it worth what people are paying for it? As far as the person buying it feels it is, yes. Are there better whiskies on the market for less in my humble opinion that may or may not be sourced that are the same age? Absolutely.
0: That seems to be a thought that maybe is changing a little bit more with you know, sourcing and blending because actually a lot more people who are getting started are sourcing. Right? Well, people <laughs> always
1: have been sourcing. It's what people don't wanna admit is that the entire whiskey industry has been based for centuries on the movement of liquid in barrels from one brand to another mm-hmm. and brands in the modern sense really didn't show up until beginning about 1850 I mean you had what started branding in the US anyway for for whiskeys was of all things and you'll love this everyone's t- talking about direct-to-consumer now we don't have it etc during the Civil War mail order whiskeys were common and people would literally order out of magazines and they would ship you a bottle a lot of these were shipped to the troops on the front and that was the only way they could get whiskey was they'd order it through the mail
0: <laughs> <That was> so <laughs> and
1: so that is how brands started and so most brands in the U.S. or most whiskey in the U.S. pre say 1885 1890 you go to a local dry goods store you go to a local bar and they would have a barrel or in some cases in the bars, they'd have big ceramic jugs. Mm-hmm. And it would say whiskey <laughs> yeah. or gin or sherry, or rum. And that's what you'd get. And you would not get, I'm gonna ask for this brand, I'm gonna ask for that brand. Um, it was only really in the late 1800s with companies like Hainer. Um Hainer created a glass bottle with its name embossed on it. And the location of, it, of all five of its distilleries around the base. The reason being is that people would, would buy that bottle of whiskey, and glass was expensive. So they would, when they were finished, they'd go to the local dry goods store and they'd say, fill up my bottle. <laughs> but now the bottle says Hainer on it. And so they would go, Do you have Hainer? My bottle's a Hainer bottle. <laughs> Brand loyalty, right? Yeah. But that didn't exist before, say, 1860. Mm. So yeah. it's,
0: it's all fascinating. Last question that I have is, what words of wisdom would you give someone, either wanting to get into the spirits industry, start a distillery, um, or, you know, just overall?
1: Okay, let's talk about a couple things. (laughs) First, if you want to get into this industry, Mm -hmm. plan to spend a lot of money, even if you want to go small. Um, It's not cheap, and it's not easy, and the competition is fierce. You're always going to be under budget, you're always going to need more money. Uh, Don't expect to get rich in this industry, and if you do, consider yourself lucky. Um, Unless you, you need to start, if you're going to get rich in this industry, you need to start with a lot of money. It is what it is. Um, As I said, I'm in the middle of a capital raise, and I'm years and years in with, you know, pretty much every award in the book. And I'm still, you know, singing for my supper, if you will waiting to get enough money so I can really scale this business to the point where we're making a lot of money. Because right now we're not. I mean, you know, I, I, that's the nature of the business. And I'm not alone. That is most small and medium distilleries. Most small and medium distilleries are either not profitable today, especially in the current economic environment. And if they, a lot of them were profitable 18 months ago, but because we all have debt, interest rates have gone up dramatically. And that's eaten up our profits grain costs because of the war in Ukraine have gone up. That's eating up our profit. So if you really want to get into this industry, one, figure out what you're doing and do the research before you walk in. Make sure you have enough money. Make sure it's something you really love. If you think it's just going to be cool to own a distillery and you don't have a lot of money, I would do the research and think real long and hard if it's the right decision for you and your family. Um, Next, figure out what you want to distill and taste as many different products in that category as you can taste I don't care if it's a bourbon if it's a rye if it's a single malt if it's a gin if it's an absinthe and the funniest one is everyone thinks because absinthe has this reputation it's cool the number of distillers that call me up and say I need help with my absinthe can you give me some advice and I'll give advice to anybody for free as long as it doesn't take a whole lot of time um and the first question I asked, well, how much absinthe have you drank? Well, I tried it once and then I got a book. You should not be making absinthe if you've only tried it once and you got a book. If you've been drinking absinthe for a few years and have drunk dozens or hundreds of different brands and truly understand what an absinthe is supposed to taste like, but the same goes for a bourbon. Most people have, you know, haven't drunk a lot of different bourbons. And bourbon is one category, but it's not one spirit. It's one category. And all bourbons do not taste the same. You need to understand the flavor profiles you like. You need to understand the underpinnings of what it takes to get that flavor profile or those flavor profiles. Um, So it's not just as easy as I've got a little money and I'm gonna buy a still. And that's the last thing. If you're gonna build a distillery, Don't just go out and buy a still, for God's sake. The still is one little teeny piece of a whole lot of expensive equipment. Yes, it's the sexy piece, but it's one little teeny piece. And I can always tell serious distillers when they walk into my plant versus people that aren't necessarily so serious because the serious distillers will be blown away by my floor drains and my boiler. The not so serious distillers will go, ooh, that's a really cool still. The serious distillers will go, man, You put in those floor drains. Those are awesome. How big a boiler do you have? Wow. Look at the fire suppression. Wait, what are you doing for cooling? Because all these things cost money. And if you just buy a still and stick it in a room, it doesn't mean you have a distillery. Anyway, the last thing I'll say is if y'all are thinking about starting a distillery, um, I would do a lot of research. I would go to a conference, preferably because you're just starting out, the American Distilling Institute's conference. This year's is next month in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to some of the seminars, talk to people, look at who's selling what, take lots of notes, but make no decisions. Learn what you're thinking about doing before you jump into it. Yeah, that's what I've got.
0: Awesome, Stephen, thank you. I appreciate you being on the podcast and giving us, dropping so many knowledge bombs today. <laughs>
1: Anything I can do to help. Hey, y'all come out, visit us in Colorado, come take a distillery tour, come to our speakeasy. Our little speakeasy tasting room is a world-class cocktail venue. Um, in fact, even though we're a whiskey shop, Gin Magazine named us Gin Bar of the Year two years ago, which is a global award. Um, we also have a very large non-alcoholic cocktail program. So if you're with people that don't drink, they can still have a wonderful experience. Um, and I think that's hugely important. Um, so please come visit us. It's, we live in a beautiful part of the world. We're in the foothills of the Rockies, just west of Denver, and it's Colorado.
0: That's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed our special guest, Stephen Gold from Golden Moon Distillery. Go check out the distillery in Golden, Colorado, and be sure to stop in Golden Moon Speakeasy. Their cocktails are absolutely fantastic hit that follow for more episodes follow on instagram at follow the curated cup check out our website TheCuratedCup.com. cup.com and if you're interested in a curated tasting send us an email at tastings at the curated cup.com until next time discover the legend in every cup